0: Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt. This is another podcast for The Diplomat. And with me today is Carl Malacunas, the director of what is becoming a hugely successful documentary, Delicado, And that's all about paramilitary environmentalists defending the rainforests in Palawan down in the southern Philippines. Carl, welcome to the program. Hi, Luke. Good good to be with you. It's done very well. Where did it start? The genesis? How did you get going on this project? I understand it's been a long time in the making.
1: Yeah, Luke, I was as Manila Bureau Chief for AFP, for Agence France Press. I was based in Manila back in 2011. And I was going to go down to Palawan just to do a innocuous story, I guess, a little feature on ecotourism down there. It was probably more an excuse to go down and have a look at this incredible island as much as anything else. Uh, I was in touch with uh, an environmental campaigner down in in Palawan who was going to take me to some of the sites that he'd set up, these uh, ecotourism sites. And uh, a few days before I was about to go down, he was shot in the head and, and killed. shot twice in the head and so I decided to go down and investigate his murder and while I was there, I was uh, sort of uncovered or discovered a whole band of land defenders and environmental crusaders, of local people trying to defend their communities from the plunder of their their lands and it's such an incredible place. Uh, Palawan is one of the Philippines and Asia's hottest tourist destinations and everyone knows it for... You know, it's beautiful beaches and it's limestone cliffs and then it's magical rainforests. But behind all that, and I didn't know until I was there, were these incredibly brave land defenders. And one of those people that I met was a man called Bobby Chan. And Bobby Chan was a lawyer from Manila who mm. was moved down to Palawan. And he had this tree made of chainsaws out the front of his NGO's headquarters on the main street of Porta Princesa, the capital of Palawan. And I said, Bobby, what's, the, what's that tree there for? And he, and he explained to me that his men would go out into the forest barefoot and, and unarmed and use the citizens' arrest law as the framework to do confiscations of chainsaws from illegal loggers. And they would come back you know, after having confiscated these chainsaws And there was such a a massive climate of fear and there is such a massive climate of fear in Palawan. But Bobby would put made this tree as a statement to people, to the businessmen, to the politicians, that he wasn't scared and then his people weren't scared and to try and encourage communities in Palawan not to be fearful and to try and overcome this culture of fear and impunity. And I realised right then that this was an incredible person doing something quite inspirational and yep. different, and and set in this paradise place, and and so that was the, that was the idea for that's how I got the
0: idea for the for the film, and uh, it grew from there. Certainly, some of the most uh, gut wrenching moments in the documentary are when the communities are confronted by having to stand up to the corruption, the illegal logging, the mayor of uh, the, the capital. She, she was an extraordinary fantastic. woman, and I think she lost the election. But it, it, it's a fantastic film, uh, if disheartening. How has things progressed since the movie came out? Well, the
1: the mayor that, that you're talking about, now Nieves Rosento. She was the mayor of El Nido, which is the most popular tourist town in Palawan. And I met Nieves when one of the para enforcers, the people who go into the forest to do the confiscations, was shot and killed in the forest. And Nieves was at his wake. Nieves is an environmental campaigner turned politician, and she was close friends with the man who was killed, Cap Rubin. And she was burying the, the, you know, Cap uh, at the cemetery alongside Cap's daughters. And I met Nieves afterwards, and she told me that she had been placed on President Rodrigo Duterte's drug list. Right. And largely as a, as a means for powerful politicians and the businessmen in that community in Palawan to get her out of
0: politics. And she wouldn't have been earmarked for arrest, she would have been earmarked for a bullet, I would imagine. Uh, yes, as we sort of show in
1: the, uh, in, in, in the film, there's uh, a mayor who was shot, and, shot and, and killed after being put on the drug list. Right. Uh, and, and in our film, you have the president actually going on TV and naming Nevez Rosento and putting her on the drug list and saying, I'm going to kill you and using the language that he's known for. So this was just ahead of the 2019 election campaign where she was running for re-election in in El Nido. Mm -hmm. And so we followed her in that election campaign. And, yes, I mean, she was waiting for assassination. You know, she was going out. You see her, you know, on the the back of a flatbed truck driving around, throwing out lollies to to kids as part of the election campaigning with a big smile on her face. At the same time, she's waiting for the bullet. She's waiting to be assassinated and we know that the facts are uh, that quite a number of politicians who were placed on the Duterte's drug list were murdered. And so, yes, the, uh, Nieves does lose that election and the drug allegations against her were very much used throughout their campaign to try and discredit her and we speak to her opponent about this. So I guess I'm, I'm giving away the, the whole film now. No, not quite.
0: There's a lot more to it than that.
1: well, and I guess we, we, you know, you wanted to know about what happens to Nieves. And, you know, she's such a powerful, strong, courageous woman. She won't give up. And this is, I guess, the essence of the film, whether it's Nieves or Bobby or Karen forced to go into the forest, they never give up. So it doesn't matter what happens to them. And, you know, Nieves loses that election and she says, I'm going to stay. I'm going to keep fighting. And for the past three years, she's been laying low, essentially. Not just because of the pandemic, but because she is such a target. But she ran for a board seat on the Palawan provincial board and in an election when most of her opponent or the governor's politicians almost swept everything in Palawan, Nieves won. She came back. So she was one of the few opposition voices that actually won. That's um, great. That's so, terrific. Yeah. Yeah. So she's she's starting her comeback.
0: Fantastic. I thought Delicado Summed up very, very well, the sort of thuggery and corruption that seems to plague the Philippines almost everywhere across the country. The uh, governor of Palawan, I found um, <laughs> rather typical, uh, but he kept repeating I've built five and a half thousand kilometres of roads, five and a half thousand, almost like he's expecting this applause. I remember during my time in Borneo and in Cambodia, that road construction was always, basically it was an excuse. It wasn't about building roads. It was all about tearing trees out. And I can remember in Sabah in West Malaysia, that one hardwood log be worth as much as $3,000. And when you do the numbers, say a road is 100, 200 metres wide and it's 5,500 kilometres long, that's an awful lot of money.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah, The as you point out, the the story that we're telling in Palawan is not unique to Palawan. It's a, it's the same story of, I guess, corrupt development that we see across the Philippines, Southeast Asia and beyond. Absolutely. Uh, and... Uh, and 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 you're right. The, these roads uh, that are built into these uh, these virgin forests, the first thing that happens is that they're used to take down the to transport the the trees that, yep. that are brought out of there, and then the development then the development ensues after that. Then it's clear. Then there's palm. Then there's rubber. Then there's mining. So yes, it, it, it's uh, and ultimately it's a completely you know, mm-hmm. different vision of development and. You know, we, we see what's happening throughout Southeast Asia. We see what, what has happened throughout Southeast Indeed. Asia. Indeed, yeah. The, 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 the businessmen are making massive profits. Uh, the GDPs of countries are, are growing and the people on the ground, the communities, uh, are the ones that generally miss out on the immediate benefits of that economic so-called development and, of course, are left to bear the consequences when the typhoon comes, when the rains come, when they're... Uh, forests now are denuded and their homes are, uh, are destroyed. When 50 years ago they would be protected from the storms. Right. Um, and these are the types of stories that, that I guess we're trying to show in in Delicado from the human level, showing what what impact it has uh, uh, you know, from from their perspective.
0: Sure, I think uh, trickle down economics, which has been used as a grand excuse for ruling elites to make lots of money, has been um, widely discredited. It simply doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah,
1: well, we can, we, as I said, we, you know, mm. we, yeah, we we see that in yeah, as as you said, we see that in in, in Palawan, we see yep. that trickle down economics. We there's one you know scene in the film that just didn't get didn't get shown, and that was the you know for, unfortunately you know, in 90 minutes we can only fit in so much, but right. the daughter of this this murdered enforcer he was in the forest. We 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 see him early in in the film. We say, why are you? Doing this, and he says, "Because when my daughter grows up, all the big trees will be gone." And then his daughter is next scene over his coffin, saying, "Papa, please don't go." I remember that. And and the you know, the daughter and and the uh, and his other daughter speak at his wake, and this is what we don't show in the film, and they say, you know. To to the loggers, you know, it's our communities that are going to be destroyed when the when the next storm comes. You, know, you have a choice. You can you can make this profit now, but you're also going to be amongst us, and we're all going to lose our homes. It's we're all going to lose our way of life. We're all going to lose our our economic benefits. And to me, that's I guess a very visceral sort of example of how
0: trickle down economics doesn't work. Yeah. I- We've seen it, as we mentioned before, we've seen it all over the region. I think the great example was Taib Mahmood, who was the uh, he was the chief minister of Sarawak uh, for 30 years. And when he retired, his family was uh, considered the world's fifth wealthiest family worth something like twenty five billion dollars. And what they did was they uh, built a dam shaved out all the trees, and the dam never got filled. They have said they were going to sell electricity to Singapore. It never happened. But he retired. The family was worth $25 billion, which is absolutely extraordinary for a man in that position. Right, right. And it, Well, yeah, I can take it, take it
1: back to Palawan and Governor Jose Alvarez, who yes. is, is featured in our, in our film. At the time of we making the film, the, the numbers have changed a little bit now. He was, as the governor of Palawan on, at, at a provincial level, mm-hmm. he was still the richest elected politician <laughs> in the whole of the Philippines, including all the national level politicians, including Manny Pacquiao. And wow. he had built a business empire, which began from a logging company in Palawan. Back in the, the Marcos dictatorship years, he was yep. allowed the only logging concession in Palawan and he had the legal logging company. And then after the People Power Revolution, logging was banned and his company was eventually closed down. And his fortune grew from his base of logging. And his critics will say that he continued to log throughout Palawan and beyond. We endeavoured to try and speak to him, but he declined to speak to us.
0: It's extremely difficult for people inside the Philippines and elsewhere to deal with these kinds of leaders, politicians, corrupt businessmen, what can be done from the outside? I mean, obviously, your movie is a fantastic testament, but what else can be done? Wow. Uh,
1: I think I'll
0: give you a heads up. I am leaning towards tourism next. <laughs> Okay. Well, yes.
1: I think uh, everyone in the Philippines is feeling, what you know, a, a big. Oh, oh, well, what can be done, considering the results of the, the latest elections right. uh, in the Philippines? We've of course, uh, Fernand Marcos's uh, son coming to power, and um, obviously, you know, all those people who fought for democracy continue that fight for for democracy and clean governance over the decades since '86 are looking and saying what happened. What can be done. Yeah, and and what happened, what can be done. And I guess one of the it's no easy solution, but from my perspective anyway, as a journalist and and a filmmaker is you know, it's you just keep chipping away, just keep trying to expose. um, Mm. and and not giving up and and information uh, is the most powerful way you know, is the the most powerful tool for change. So we've just got to try to continue
0: that, to try and get that information out. Indeed. We've seen throughout the COVID pandemic, tourists have stayed at home and there's been, you know, some kind of respite for a lot of these environmentally sensitive areas that have been under enormous pressure I'm going to get in trouble for saying this but I'd prefer it if the tourists stayed away. You know there's a lot there's a lot of businessmen who uh in Cambodia and Southeast Asia, Philippines and they all think it's going to go back to the way it was. They want Thousands upon thousands of tourists. The the Thais are telling people, come back, we love you. And so I, I kind of remember a different type of Thailand before the pandemic and the way tourists were treated and ripped off and scammed, all these sorts of things that have gone on over the years. And it's they're all desperate for money. They all see tourists as a, as a cash cow. Do you do you think it's possible that tourists might become a little more eco-friendly and think about where they're going and what their destinations should be?
1: Uh, taking it back to our film, yeah, there's Rosento, the, the mayor of El Nido.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, she doesn't say she doesn't want tourism. She doesn't say she doesn't want to go back to the very basics for 30 years ago. What she's asking for is sustainable tourism. That, of course, is an extremely complex and uh, yeah. structure. Yep. Uh,
0: and, yeah, go on. But, sorry. But
1: that's what. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No. But it, yes, she's saying, she, you know, don't don't turn away the tourists. Asking them to be conscious and to make conscious decisions when they come.
0: Right. Uh, we're seeing a lot of eco lodges being set up. Eco tourism is the buzzword. It has been for a while, but it's making a comeback as we kind of emerge out of the pandemic era. Fingers crossed. But uh, there's been a lot of accusations that ecotourism is nothing more than greenwashing and that at the end of the day, a lot of these businesses are controlled by cabinet ministers, friends of the ruling elites, and that it basically becomes another cover to keep on doing what they've always been doing, which is taking out whatever logs are left. Then it spreads from there, illegal fishing, uh, and then that translates into the trafficking of people into jobs they don't want, but press ganged into boats, that sort of thing an extremely difficult cycle to break, uh, one leading to the other to the other.
1: Absolutely. And part of that cycle is, uh, at the beginning of the cycle, is this land is often appropriated by the most marginalised who have either, you know, have that land stolen from them or uh, they're threatened or intimidated into selling that land or, or duped into selling that land very cheaply. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, so starting from that base, uh, then illegal logging and, you know, come and build, you know, is, you know the resorts are being built with unsustainable natural, re- you know, use of natural resources and right. on it goes, absolutely. it's uh, There aren't any easy answers to mass tourism.
0: <laughs> no, there's <laughs> to not. The mass tourism. Uh, Palawan also seemed to become a lot more popular after Boracay, which was once a pristine island, I remember it 30 years ago, the White Sands, then they built a golf course in the middle and everything went downhill from there. And if I remember correctly, it was basically closed down. It's no longer functional. Was it then that Palawan got a lease of life from mass tourism? And is that the threat that it's facing perhaps in another five, 10 years if things do go back to the touristy levels that they were before the pandemic? Right, uh, I think...
1: I don't think there was a direct cause and, and, uh, um, and effect of Barocco's problems and Palawan becoming popular. Palawan was designated as a protected area and it was one of the last parts of the country to get, of big parts of the country, to get airports that would allow mass tourism. And when those airports were built, then came the uh, the, the tourists Barakai only has beaches right. a couple of kilometers long. Palawan's massive and it's it's probably got it's got hundreds of barakais um, wow. there. And they're the ones that have been developed, you know, and that's what we show in our in our film. It's the race for these pristine beaches and it's this dichotomy, I guess, with the business people who want to set up these places in paradise, but are destroying paradise to set those places up.
0: Right. Now the, and, the Yep, sorry, go on. Uh, yep. And then the tourists come <laughs> and, and and confound the problem <laughs> yeah, it just goes round and round the, the delicado it's you've had tremendous reviews, and I understand you've uh won a couple of awards, which has only happened in the last week or two. Take me through that uh the well the the film
1: is, has really just sort of emerged in you know in publicly over the last six weeks, i guess um right. we had our our global premiere at the hot docks festival in uh in Canada. And now we're starting, I guess, a festival run. Then we're in a festival in L.A. where we won a special jury award. And then we were in a festival in California. I'm speaking to you from New York. where We're having we're at the uh, New York Human Rights Watch uh, Film Festival. Fantastic. And Yeah, and then we're off to, to Mountain Film in, in Telluride in, in Colorado next week. And then Sydney Film Festival, which is going to be great to be able to uh, to have an Australian premiere in front of home audience. Uh, yeah, you'll be there. coming so home. We'll, we'll, yeah, big game, coming home for that. So re- really excited. So that's the sort of the, the, and then the festivals will will continue. We've been lucky enough to secure a partnership, a deal with uh, PBS here in America. Uh-huh. So we'll be screening on uh, on POV, which is one of their, uh, their their main documentary uh, stream on uh, September 26th, So it'll be broadcast into homes across America. And then we're also uh, we're still looking to to sell to uh, markets uh, around around the world, and we're you know, we're building an impact campaign uh, around the film. So this success is is great, but the whole uh, you know the whole motivation for this is not just to make a film, but to try and you know, have have an impact with it. And and our impact campaign is primarily built around the idea of empowering land defenders in Palawan, the Philippines, and around the world and helping to protect the forests that they're striving to protect. Right. Uh, land defenders are being killed in record numbers around uh, not just the Philippines, but globally. This has been documented by Global Witness. Yep. The Philippines is either, each year, the deadliest country in the world uh, or one of the deadliest, and always the deadliest country in Asia. Certainly. Um, and so, yep. so our, our idea is, is to try and be a part of a movement to help protect these land offenders. And the success of the film, what we're experiencing now is, is wonderful, but it's about setting the foundation for, for, for this impact
0: campaign. Right, now you're an old stager, you've been in journalism for a long time. How difficult was it to get where you are now? And by that, I mean, we, we've been hearing stories and tales of woe from uh, filmmakers and people who produce documentaries for the last five, ten years now that the industry is dead, it's not going any further, it's so hard to raise money, people don't watch documentaries the way they used to. Has that been your experience or is the industry moving into uncharted waters? Well, some people argue it's the golden age of documentaries now.
1: Um, With all the streaming services, they're competing to to buy Mm -hmm. Uh, and so there are so many more opportunities to for documentaries to get into, you know, to, to be taken by the likes of Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, et cetera, Disney. So in in some respects, there's a, a lot of opportunities now. Having said that, it's, uh, making independent films is not uh, independent documentaries. It's not easy. You know, we've spent five years of non-stop cam yeah. Uh, work try, trying to raise
0: the funds. Yeah, um, I, I looked at the that's, crowdfunding. That's the challenge. You did. A, you ran a crowdfunding campaign that seemed to have been quite successful. I know a lot of people who have started crowdfunding campaigns only to be disappointed, but yours seem to have uh, yeah. done well. Yeah, we did
1: a little bit of, of public fundraising but we've mostly gone through different organisations like uh, Sundance Institute was a the backer. There's uh, a group called Candeta Fund, Doc Society. There are lots of groups that want to try and change the narrative on on climate change on the environment and so we were I guess very fortunate to be able to tap into those groups to get us the the main funding to keep us going as well as our deal with uh, PBS which is through a production company called ITVS.
0: Right so uh, you've done extraordinarily well with Delicado. what's next?
1: Uh, well, I've, I'd still love to continue to... This has been an amazing opportunity to, to, to make a, a film that hopefully can have some sort of uh, uh, lasting impact. And I'd like to continue trying to make films uh, about the environment and, and climate change and ones that will hopefully inspire and enrage and cause people to take action and i hopefully feel that you know with delicado one of the reasons that it's been a success is it's not just sitting there talking about the problems it's very much an inspirational film because it shows what these incredible people are capable of and what they're willing to do and what they're willing to sacrifice and i'd love to try and continue that theme in, in in whether it's my journalism or in filmmaking. It's almost too easy just to say what the problems are, but how do you try and create the energies within people to take positive action?
0: And uh, I've got a couple of ideas for, for other films within those broad parameters. I want to ask you what they are. In fact, I'll save them for another time. Carl Malenkunis, director of Delicado. thank you very much and congratulations on the success of your documentary. Great to talk to you, Luke. Thanks very much.